Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to the latest edition of the Pocalimp podcast. I'm Rick Henderson and this week we'll be looking at Qualcomm's latest Snapdragon Summit and the hardware it announced during the two-day event. We'll also be interviewing the development CTO of the BMW Group, Frank Weber, about the BMW i7 and electric and autonomous driving in general. And we'll review the Canon EOS R7, its latest APS-C mirrorless camera hoping to bridge the gap between convenience and pitch quality. But now back to Qualcomm and its Snapdragon Summit. Joining me is editor of PocketLink, Chris Hall, who can explain a bit more about it. First up, Chris, what is the Snapdragon Summit? It's a strange name for something that's really quite technical. Um, Snaps, Snapdragon Summit is a an annual conference or congress that is held by Qualcomm, where it shows off products within its Snapdragon portfolio. So this is mostly consumer stuff, which is why we get interested in it and why lots of people are interested in it, because Qualcomm will announce all of these Snapdragon products, which will then go on to power a range of smartphones, laptops, and other devices over the coming year. It doesn't just show um, mobile processors, although its biggest announcement this year, obviously, was the Snapdragon 8 Gen 2 CPU. Yeah, that's right. And anybody who's been following smartphones for a while will know that Snapdragon has been at the heart of many of them and will be at the heart of many of them for the future. And the Snapdragon 8 series is really their top of the line. It used to be called the 800 series and they they shuffled the the naming around with the last generation. So we're now on Snapdragon 8 Gen 2. And as you can imagine, these kind of developments are slightly incremental. So they don't really change the game with every step. They, They create new efficiencies. They put in improvements in in specific places so you'll see that you have better graphics performance and faster computing performance and all of this will happen with greater efficiency so the long and short of it is next generation of devices end up having more power and lower battery life demands which is exactly what everybody's looking for um and basically when can we start to see uh the the products of qualcomm's labors in consumer hands Well, the interesting thing about Snapdragon Summit in 2022 is that it's been brought forward by a month. And so I think that we're going to be seeing products before the end of the year. Now, previously, uh, this new hardware would be announced and then it would probably be January or February before anything new came out. But making it known to the public a little bit earlier seems to be feeding into the line. And I suspect that we'll be seeing announcements from brands like Oppo or Xiaomi because Snapdragon hardware is very, very popular in the Chinese market. And often um, the manufacturers over in China make announcements before Christmas. You know, so, so there'll be, there'll be d- devices that they launch in China, which may not come out in the rest of the world until February or March next year. Um, but yeah, we'll definitely start to see these devices appearing within weeks, I would imagine. 
Um, Qualcomm is kind of spreading its wings and has always sort of provided concept technologies at these summits. Um, but it's kind of spreading its wings even further at the moment because there's an awful lot of mobile manufacturers creating their own chipsets now, aren't there? Yeah, that's right. And I think that's part of the exercise here is to make people say, I want a Snapdragon branded device because you're right, there are lots of other people who are playing in this game and some of them are developing their own hardware and branding it as their own hardware. Lots of people are developing their own branded hardware, but are all using exactly the same core to it. Uh, Snap, uh, Qualcomm is obviously keen to make sure that they still have a huge market in mobile devices. And and yeah, so they want to make sure that it's appealing, but also that they are powering a full range of different types of devices. And this really sees Qualcomm mirroring the same sort of changes that we saw over at Apple, where Apple was was developing its own hardware and then moved that over to its laptops uh, when it started talking about Apple Silicon. And that's something that has been going on in the background in the industry for a while. And it's now starting to become more evolved and more developed. So there are Snapdragon products that power laptops as well. They're not as widely used as Apple's devices. Um, many sort of Windows laptops will still be running on Intel, but there is a, a growing demand for the advantages that come with using Snapdragon hardware. The, fi- the integrated 5G, for example, uh, enhanced battery life and that kind of thing. I mean, the other thing that people might not realise about Qualcomm is it also is behind Aptex, the uh, Bluetooth wireless music uh, audio standard, which allows you to stream almost lossless audio to different devices. And there were quite a few big announcements here about uh, Snapdragon sound. Um, but we need to start seeing it come into headphones, really, because we haven't actually seen it. Yeah, this is an interesting, interesting shift in in the way that Qualcomm is positioning itself. As it's this, as you said, it, it kind of sits on the technology between Aptex and all the variants of it, Aptex HD and adaptive and so on. Um, and audio people have been talking about Aptex for a long time because of the 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 ability to listen to higher quality wireless music. Qualcomm wrapped it up into a package called Snapdragon Sound and. The aim here is really to include it with with their hardware so that if you have a a Snapdragon 8 Gen 2 device, it may well offer Snapdragon sounds as well. In the olden days, it would have just said, well, the Aptex codecs are supported natively. So part of it is a rebranding exercise as they redevelop redevelop this stuff. There aren't many manufacturers at the moment, however, who talk about Snapdragon sound. I think we've seen, I saw a set of headphones from Master and Dynamic that talked about Snapdragon sound, but there are lots of manufacturers who still talk about Aptex and the various, you know, and the various versions of that. So it kind of feels as though Qualcomm is pushing Snapdragon sound in one direction. We're waiting to see if the rest of the market leaps on board, because ultimately, if you make a set of headphones, you want to support as many codecs as you can you as as you can so that may be aptex um ldac from sony is another one and and as there is greater data available for music downloads and streaming you know we're seeing higher quality music services and a greater demand for you know better quality audio through through these headphones so there's a bit of a battle of the codex going on some of this will purely come down to how much of a license fee a particular headphone manufacturer would have to pay to the person who provided the codec 
Um, so yeah, this is all still a work in progress, but through this, through the next year, we'll probably see more devices and more headphones that are launching using Snapdragon Sound as a brand to try and convince you to pair up a particular phone with a particular brand of headphones, for example. Um, the other area that um, at this Snapdragon Summit that you could see Qualcomm really moving into is AR. And it had an, a new chipset which allows AR to become a little bit more as we'd expect in science fiction movies. Yeah, uh, Qualcomm has been producing hardware for VR headsets and, and demoing concept versions for for many years before anybody was really thinking about it in sensible terms. And we're now moving towards a point where people are saying, well, this is this is a reality now. And one of the big barriers has always been form factor and having lighter hardware that needs less power to run it is really important because you don't want to be wearing a massive battery on your head if you're trying to wear a pair of AR glasses. So the idea here is to make sure that you can have all of the data rates so that you can have great connectivity to be able to process all of the information as well as have this running without needing a lot of power so that you can wear these glasses and 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 walk around the place and be untethered from your phone and all the rest of it. The most important thing here really is going to be about the people who take this hardware and develop it. And there are lots of people saying that they're interested from the usual suspects like Xiaomi and Lenovo. Uh, but for me personally, I was more interested in the messages coming out of uh, Niantic, who is behind uh, Pokemon Go. Because Pokemon Go, as far as I'm concerned, is the most significant uh, augmented reality event that's lasted for how many years? Six years now, I think Pokemon Go has been around and it's still hugely popular. And that really changed uh, the message and said, this is something you could actually do. So if we can see a development where you could have Pokemon Go in a slim pair of glasses to augment reality as you see it without having to use your phone all the time to view the world, then that's going to be a major development. And importantly, it would be a massive hook for, for actual real consumers for for customers for to say to people go out and buy this because here's something that's actually really clever so i think the final word will be um we should see the smartphones from the end of the year but are we expecting to see any of uh, uh qualcomm's other technologies emerging onto the market in 2023 uh certainly i don't think they would be showing this stuff off if they didn't have every intention of of having it out there on on the market I think the best time to look forward to is February, March 2023 around Mobile World Congress. That's where I, we expect a lot of devices will be made. And throughout the year, these things will probably be launched. So I would say that by summer next year, we'll probably have some slim AR glasses that will look pretty cool and have plenty of functionality. Now to BMW and an interview with the company's chief technology officer and member of BMW AG's board of management, Frank Weber. Chris recently took a drive with him in the new BMW i7 around the streets of Palm Springs, where they talked about the car, the company and the future of motoring in general. He started by asking why BMW decided to launch the new 7 series with a complete range of powertrains. When you look at the next 10 years, you see, depending on markets, within markets, depending on countries' readiness for electric propulsion, if there is a strong interest in electric propulsion, but at the same time 
there is an interest in combustion engines. If you take the US, for example, California is a wonderful example. There are people who are looking now forward to getting a new 7 Series with an 8-cylinder. And then there are people here that say, oh, a new 7 Series needs to be electric uh, and it can only be electric. And um, since this is true in almost all markets, um, uh, we decided and said we want to have uh, the best combustion engines, the best plug-in hybrids, and we want to have uh, the best possible battery electric vehicle for the 7 Series, especially for especially for this car. So whichever 7 Series you buy, you'll get in a proper 7 Series and all of the choices. Okay, you will see the V8 later. You will see, by the way, I could I can give you a diesel, uh, 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 a diesel 7 Series. I can give you one of the plug-in hybrids where the electric drive has as much torque as a six-cylinder. So I can give you whatever propulsion system you want. The only thing I'm telling my team is I want that the best solution comes from us. So are there any compromises in the platform because of that flexibility that you have? Uh, you would actually, like, uh, there is no compromise. There is no compromise. Uh, because you have, in, at the end, a little bit more height because you have to accommodate the batteries. You saw that in the workshop this morning. Yeah. Uh, to accommodate this battery, at the end, we have 35 millimeters more in height than our competitor that has no BEF capability. Mm -hmm. So this is the, if you want, this is the delta. This is the, uh, this is the delta. I think the discussion around purpose-built architectures and, and flexible architectures, uh, I think we proved already with the um, I-4. I think this is not, not such a fundamental discussion like some people say is, if you are not purpose-built, actually, you, uh, your vehicle cannot work. So what's it been like for you uh, witnessing the transition from combustion to electrification? For me, this has a very high attraction. Uh, 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 the future is, elect is electric. Uh, and I think what we are focusing on is how do we get to this fully electric future because this is not trivial at all. This is not just about now providing some electric vehicles and the rest will come. Um, I, um, I used to call this, we have to prepare our industry and the industries around us for BEF readiness. And this BEF economy requires sufficient charging. It requires green raw materials in every world region. It requires green electricity for producing cells, green electricity for driving cars. And it needs full circularity on the precious raw materials you have within battery cells. So what you always have to think about is, have we, are we ready in every country and you come from you come from the UK, the UK, yeah. And where you where we sometimes ask ourselves, you have the impression that the ambition, the political ambition, is not in line with what is really feasible within that industry. Sure. <laughs> and, uh, and therefore, I personally, I have to admit, um, uh, you will see it later in the drive when you when you take the seven series as one example, and um, and see how the i seven now is performing. What you will observe, and this is not just on the co driver side, you will experience it yourself. Since you have that, uh, that high mass battery, we talk about almost 700 kilograms of battery mass sitting in the, in the center of the car. What this is doing is the car is getting, uh, the car is getting, uh, 
with regard to the wheel mass and the rest of the vehicle. The unsprung mass is very low in comparison to the rest and suddenly you not only have a quiet propulsion system, you have in your whole vehicle. Uh, it's a very calm setup. So it's, uh, therefore I say um, uh, the, uh, having a fantastic a battery electric version and at the same time a combustion engine is for me no personal conflict at all. I think we have to help consumers into this electric world. Not everybody, we have to say, is ready for fully electric. But yeah. the people who are ready, they can take now a 7 Series and say, um, uh, actually, I can use this car like I used my other car. Um, uh, yesterday, I mentioned it briefly. Um, I'm driving now for 5,500 kilometers. 5,500. Uh, since July with my 7 Series. And I have I had a consumption average over the 5,500 of 20.6 kilowatt hours per hundred, which is, uh, I think, uh, an excellent, excellent result. And, uh, so I think many people will love uh, exactly this electric version. Yeah. And there will be others who say, I still love what I'm used to. So, yeah, sure. So I should just say that we are sitting in the BMW i7 driving through Palm Springs at the moment. Very quiet, very refined so far. Um, what is your favorite piece of technology in the car? Uh, the car is never a single piece of technology. The, what I love about it is how, how we achieve from generation to generation uh, always uh, an improvement and it's, a, and it's the whole thing that is improving. In a 7 series you expect from all areas driving dynamics, uh, all the comfort that the car has, digital performance and then there are you might say uh, theater mode is not a gimmick for people that are sitting in the rear say I have never had such an experience <laughs> and when you take all of this together I think it is the combination of those things sure. that make a top-end product like the 7 Series so attractive. So, mm. this, so just to um, <laughs> illustrate this for people listening, with the press of a couple of buttons we've just deployed a uh, theatre in the rear of the car and I'm now having a massage in the front seat. Um, <laughs> so one of the uh, manufacturers who's done a lot of, uh, putting a lot of work to create a seamless experience for their users is Tesla. Tesla is one of Tesla's strongest strongest points is the supercharger network. Yep. What is BMW doing to make that experience, the charging experience on the road, as smooth as it is a Tesla supercharger? Um, when you look at our, and uh, since we are talking Europe now as an example, uh, we have Ionity. Ionity is a, a, uh, a multi-OEM uh, charging network that has uh, that has as many uh, high power chargers uh, as Tesla has. In addition, we are cooperating uh, with other companies to have even more charging. So when you look at the comparisons of what you can do with a BMW charging cart, you have more access points than anybody else. And they all work and you get, uh, uh, also when it comes to the tariffs and everything, I think our uh, our system is performing is performing really well. What we are watching very carefully is when you have high power chargers and you have 
multiple outlets at this single charger location. Mm -hmm. You observe with the manufacturer that you have just mentioned, that when they have multiple vehicles at this at this high power charger, then you have only very little power available for the individual car. And so when you come to an Ionity location where you have six or eight individual uh, uh, charging points, you can see that you can have uh, six or eight vehicles also charged at the same high level of uh, 200, 300 kilowatts at this uh, at this location. And this is how we are designing it. Um, and uh, uh, you are absolutely right. Charging is the number one convenience factor for people. You can dissatisfy or satisfy people with charging. But I think I, I, I would say with Ionity and the options we have in here, uh, we are well positioned. So if you if you look at the offer we have in here, just get an idea. And, uh, uh, when you this would be our charging options that our charging card gives you access to. So we've just pulled onto the highway, freeway, motorway, autobahn. Um, tell me something about taking uh, hands-free driving to the next level. Yeah, what we have uh, um, um, level two functions where the driver is still responsible. You can uh, nevertheless enhance your feeling of automation a lot. So when you look at the system capabilities that we have with uh, some additional sensing, we have enhanced we have enhanced the capabilities a lot. So this will keep you in position in the lane, follow the curves of the road, yep. avoid traffic, will it change lanes for you? We don't have uh, automatic lane change. Okay. Yes. And this is currently legal in the US and Canada? Is this that is legal in the US and China. And China. And China and Europe. We are working with the regulators intensively because those functions here give consumers for the relative cost of such a system, a lot of benefit, a lot of benefit. And since the European regulators very much focused on level three systems, they actually, they, it's not that they forgot it, but actually looking at how level two systems can be enhanced, uh, they ignored it for uh, a little bit of time. So we are, I think we are currently uh, optimistic that we will have very soon the possibility to take that system that you see in here, that we will be able to do this also in Europe. Fantastic. Yeah, because I, I think this is something people are, are really looking forward to. And so to our review, and I'm now joined by PocketLink contributing editor Luke Baker, who has been testing the Canon EOS R7 flagship mirrorless camera. Canon has historically been slow to embrace the rise of the hybrid, but in the R7 it has an APS-C option that looks great on paper. Does that ring as true in the field though, Luke? Yeah, so I spent about a week with the Canon R7, um, and it's quite an impressive body. Specs-wise, there's a lot going for it. It has a much improved autofocus system. It's got in-body image stabilization. And um, yeah, it's all quite good. But the, the problem is there's not many lenses that are, well, at the moment, there's two lenses that are specifically designed for APS-C on the RF mount, which is what the R7 and R10 now use. Um, 
so that leaves you with a lot of very very expensive lens options that you can't make the most of with the camera and it puts it in a very strange middle ground um i think if they release more appealing lenses then it'll be a really good pick for a lot of people but at the moment like i said there's two neither of them are very exciting lenses they're quite slow zoom lenses um so yeah it's it's a hard it's a hard one to recommend when there's so many other great APS-C options with boatloads of lenses. Um, but if Canon continue to support the system and build out that lens portfolio, then it, it could be amazing. So yeah, very, very strange one. I mean, naturally, it's, uh, it's I think it has recently announced a full frame option as well of a different, different model, but in mirrorless. Um, so is there still a market for canon in the APS-C arena well that is what was lacking so it's understandable that they why they've released some APS-C bodies um but the big change is that the the APS-C bodies used to be with the M mount uh or the EF on DSLR um and now they've moved it to the same mount as the full frame cameras which is RF mount um which in theory is a good thing if like if you already own a lot of that glass you can use it across but because it's designed for full frame it's large it's heavy it's expensive and it doesn't really make sense on an APS-C camera um so yeah that's that's where they're at um looking back at the actual camera itself about the body I mean that's obviously a, a pitfall but this is um a new venture for them so what's the size like what's it like to hold uh, it's quite compact but um still quite weighty it's a lot like the 7d um from years back it's kind of the old it's dslr as, yeah yeah um surprisingly it's not much smaller being mirrorless and that seems to be the case with sony and everyone really like originally everyone thought mirrorless bodies were going to be really small but then they started adding in image stabilization and everything and they've kind of bulked back up to the exact same size that they used to be um but it's very ergonomic it's a classic kind of canon look um they the one thing that's interesting is they've moved the the wheel on the rear of the camera where you normally select the iso that's higher up on this model and this is the only model where it's moved um I found it a little bit too close to my face when I was taking photos. It was a bit strange to get used to. It worked fine, but it's one of those that where you just think, I don't really know why they've changed this. If they just want to try something different, why not, I suppose? But, yeah. <laughs> Can you see their mirrorless cameras actually eventually replacing the full frame? Because, or, or Sorry, not full frame, the uh, DSLRs. Because um, I own both a Canon DSLR, the 5D Mark III, which still, I swear, is is one of the greatest cameras ever made. Um, but also uh, an EOS M original um, mirrorless camera. And the reason why I bought that is because it's a complementary camera. It actually yeah. fits in a bag. It's it, I can just chuck it in a bag. I can use that at any time, whereas the 5D is a monster. Um, 
it seems with, like you say, the EOS R7 is a little bit more chunky, a little bit more weighty than that. So is it a really replacement for a DSLR? Um, yeah, I think it just seems to be the way the industry is going. Um, obviously, there's something to be said for DSLRs. There's a, it's very nice that that shutter click. You can't really replicate that without the you know the uh, mirror moving out of the way and everything. And it's nice to actually look through the prism and see through the lens. But there's so many advantages to going mirrorless, um, especially in the speed, the burst speed, and actually being able to see your exposure properly through the EVF rather than kind of, um, yeah, kind of guessing what the final output's going to look like. It does seem pretty much everyone's going all in on mirrorless. Um, and Canon was the big holdout, but I mean, I, I don't know the last time they released a DSLR. It's all been mirrorless lately. So it does seem to be the way of things. Um, I suppose the uh, the last thing I can I, my last question is what else does it have? Um, is there a reason to buy it if you are sort of like willing to wait for those lenses? Yeah, I, I'd say if you already own an um, an R series camera, you've already got RF glass that you're happy with, then. The R7 makes sense as a companion camera, especially for wildlife. The APS-C crop lets you get closer. It's much faster than any of the full-frame uh, cameras in terms of burst speed. Um, and it's got some high-speed uh, high video options as well, which are less common on the full-frame ones. So, yeah, I think that kind of... If you've already invested in the glass, then the, the price of it doesn't matter so much because you already own it. And then it does have a use then it's just if you're looking for an APS-C camera it's a weird choice until they make APS-C specific glass that that's more appealing am i right in thinking it's around 1200 300 300? i think yeah yeah about that yeah so 1349 you know, fairly so it's fairly reasonably priced for a flagship camera yeah it is it is a good price um, when you compare to, I think Fujifilm's the the main competitor in terms of APS-C bodies. Um, pretty much everything is more expensive, um, especially if you want to if you want equivalent specs. You're looking at least five hundred pounds more, probably more than that. Um, so yeah, the the one thing one of the things that is yeah appealing is that it's, it's on the low end of pricing. It is quite quite well priced. And that's it for another Pocket Link podcast. I've been Rick Henderson and I'll be returning soon with a new episode where we'll bring you the latest from the world of tech. In the meantime, please rate us on the podcast platform of your choice and or let us know what you think of the podcast on Instagram at pocketlint.com or one word and Twitter at pocketlint, no hyphen. Until next time, tatty bye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.